The following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Doesn't sound like she's got her headphones in. So we can wait four minutes, I suppose. Oh. Still there? Well, I'm still here. All right. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You gonna hear me okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. Just fine. I've been uh, learning how to manipulate the compression compression and limiting settings on uh, Pro Tools. Right. So now I'm coming to understand that you actually do really want to crank the gain on a microphone and then let the compressors and limiters do the job of pulling it back. When you're doing something like this, yes. Right. So, like, for example, my VU meter now goes halfway. Yours only goes a quarter of the way. Right. Now, I have to keep my compression and limiting low because I, I'm going to be, when I do uh, voice work, it's going to be compressed and limited a number of times before it reaches the air. Ah, uh, I see. So I have to have it very, very flat and unprocessed. Flat and unprocessed, like my personality. Uh, yes, that's true. <laughs> here we go, here we go, here we go. Live from Studio 3B. Now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast. With Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Featuring musical guests, Sting. More people watch eSports than the NBA. We'll introduce you to evangelist and investor Jean-Vierre Rock Dector of Grit Capital. Fans lined up for the third annual Music Fan Expo. And most of them were see Allen, of course. We were there to talk to the band The Spoons. And uh, Michael managed to contain himself. Oh, Sandy Horn. Here we go. <laughs> you got nothing for that? Nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Yeah, because what I tend to do is I tend to crank your gain. Mm. Uh, and then I use the, the compression and the limiters so that um, I no longer get the headphone bleed. Yeah. So that when I'm talking and you're listening. Super awesome. Just about to do the Michael Hainsworth uh, podcast. And tradition is to drink while doing the podcast. So I've got a lovely <laughs> bottle of Toscana. Um, probably won't drink the whole thing, though. Okay. I'll... Oh, I see. She's doing a social media thing. Uh, no, no, no. She's listening back to her uh, her social media post. Oh, is that what you think of it? Yeah. Okay. I, I like this woman. <laughs> yeah, I sent her an email saying, hey, heads up. Yeah. Ever since I was a young boy, I played the silver ball. From Soho down to Brighton, I must have played them all. But I ain't seen nothing like it. Now, this is kind of my geek world, dude, but do you have any idea how big esports is today? I have been watching from a distance because every year I go to an event in Singapore called Music Matters, and every once in a while there is a seminar on esports. 
And people from South Korea come and talk about exactly how big of a phenomenon that has become in certain parts of Asia. This has, I know, bled to other parts of the world. And I, you know, this is going to sound really flippant, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see an Olympic equivalent of esports if we don't haven't already uh, in the next few years. Yeah, you mentioned that when we were at uh, the big, uh, uh, what was it, the, the Music Fan Expo show. And, and you know what, you may not be that far off because as many people watch esports in a sitting as Game 7 of the NBA Finals, and they had 44.5 million people watching the action, according to uh, Amber Healy, who wrote up a detailed piece for us on geeksandbeats.com. This is one of those things that's really below the radar for the mainstream. You know, everybody is still watching the Super Bowl, watching the NBA Finals, watching the Stanley Cup Finals. More people watch esports than all those combined. And that's what I'm saying. It's that it hasn't reached a critical mass so that the mainstream pays attention, which is ridiculous considering how many people are participating and watching other people play video games. So, for perspective on this, I turn to Jean-Vivre Rockdector, an esports evangelist and investor at Grit Capital. She joins us now from Toronto. Thank you for joining us. Hey, great to be here. Always love talking uh, e-gaming and esports. The mainstream may not be up to speed on that, but that doesn't include the millennial generation, where a substantial portion of the demographic exists. Yeah, and um, I think one of the reasons why it doesn't feel mainstream is that because those millennials are actually watching these competitions online. They're watching them on a platform called Twitch, mostly, um, or, or YouTube, but Twitch seems to be the predominant one. And Twitch is a streaming site, so you have gamers on there, like Ninja would be the most well-known. He's the biggest gamer in the world, and he's, he plays Fortnite. And at any given time, this is this is the number that really drove it home for me, was that at, at any given time, there are the same amount of people watching Ninja on Twitch, which is now owned by Amazon. They, they purchased it a couple of years ago for about a billion dollars. There's, there's the same amount of people watching Ninja than there are watching CNBC at any given moment. So when I saw that stat, I, I, was, I was floored. It's just, it's not a mainstream story because it's not like you turn on your TV and just like it's, you know, Saturday night, hockey night in Canada, you don't have, you know, hockey night and, or Fortnite in Canada yet. You don't, you don't have that, but I'm sure there's going to be a Don Cherry if there isn't one already <laughs> in the gaming world. What are the numbers as far as this is concerned? Because I know that in 2018, we were expecting esports revenue to top 900 million bucks. What about 2019? Yeah, I think it's it's growing at, at a pretty big click. I think it's it's surpassed the billion dollar mark now. Um, the viewership's about three hundred million. So there's the you know the entire size of the United States right now on the planet playing some form of an e game. Um, and so the the numbers are large. And you know a lot of people to, to, to back to your point about you know a lot of people are watching it, but they're not they're not they're, they're a lot of people are playing it, but there's a lot of people watching it. You know, some people say, like, why would I go watch, like, an e-gaming tournament? Like, I don't play Fortnite. I don't play League of Legends. I don't I don't play any of these games. Well, a lot of people that go watch the Leafs or go watch the Jays don't play those sports either, not even in a, in a beer league. So I think that that doesn't really apply. I just think that we have to overcome some of the stereotypes because, you know, the, the e-gamers, they don't look like professional athletes because they don't, they don't need to look like them, right? They don't need the same athletic proudness. So I think there's just kind of a mindset shift that has to happen. Well, they have huge thumbs. That's, that's the only thing that I can think. <laughs> well, yeah, and I was actually reading this article today that was saying that 
because they're not competing physically. Um, like the NBA and the NHL tried to launch sort of like international leagues, but because of the travel and the, the impact that it has on the players' bodies and all that, um, it's been difficult. But that might not be the same issue with, with e-gamers and might not be a bottleneck or a constraint. Well, maybe that's the problem is that we call it e-sports and the expectation is sports means athleticism, which means physical activity as opposed to the mental image of a South Park character playing World of Warcraft. Let us bravely charge the fields of Azeroth from which... Hey, fellas! Boy, this is neato, huh? Butters, what the hell are you doing? I got World of Warcraft, like you said. You can't be the dwarf character, Butters. I'm the dwarf. Well, there's only like four races to choose from. So pick another one! I'm the dwarf, you stupid asshole! Log out, create a new character, and log back in! I like Hello Kitty on Adventure a lot more than this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I also think, you know, these these games have to start organizing themselves like the professional sports leagues. And actually, I'm going to be speaking or actually moderating a panel on Wednesday at the Cantec conference on e-gaming. And it's all about how will these gaming franchises one day look like the professional sports franchises. And on the panel is Zach Hyman from the uh, from the Leafs, who actually has launched an e-gaming company himself called E11 that is a Fortnite team. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to have that conversation because there are definitely some similarities. Like Overwatch has set itself up as a franchise. So it's sold the rights in different cities. Like the Toronto rights got sold for 20 to $30 million. The Vancouver rights got sold a bunch of rights over in Asia. But then there's a lot of differences, right? Like they're not, the streaming is where all the, they're not the streaming, I should call it, the broadcasting rights is really where the money's at in, in professional sports, right? But it's a bit different now because it's on, for e-gaming, it's on, on Twitch, it's on YouTube. So it's not as straightforward. The money, the money loop is not exactly the same. And I want to kind of find out what it looks like. I actually have a bit of an analogy. If you can turn snooker and billiards and darts. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, into uh, a television-worthy uh, sporting events where basically you got you know fat guys throwing needles at a, at a board with an entire arena full of people behind them. Both guys hit the ball and Michael Smith first down a double top, yeah. And here's the first maximum. What a great response to going down two-one. Opens. And what a great response to a great response. Oh, fireworks! Fabulous! Unbelievable! And they've got sponsorship, and they've got uh, uniforms, and they've got fan clubs, and all the rest of it. That seems to work on television. Same thing with billiards and, and snooker. So where's the money made? How is it made? Where is this coming from when we talk about the kind of revenue at a billion bucks? Yeah, so right now, most of the, the revenue is coming from sponsorship. So if you're a Red Bull or you're Intel or anybody that's kind of like wanting to reach the millennial audience or is somehow involved in the product. So like Intel, for example, would be, you know, the microchips and, and, and the computing power and Red Bull's just trying to reach, you know, the 15 to 30 year old. Um, it, it's sponsorship. So these companies are sponsoring major tournaments all around the world. And the bulk of the money is coming from from that. Um, Goldman Sachs actually put out an e-gaming report a few months back explaining that for this industry, this e-gaming industry, to grow and kind of get to the scale in terms of revenue numbers that, that are more like five to 10 times bigger 
um, than they are today to, to, to kind of look more like the professional sports leagues. Um, the, the, the broadcasting rights and the streaming rights is really where it, it has to go. So, for example, Overwatch signed a deal um, with Twitch a couple, I think it was about 18 months ago, to basically share in the revenue. So if a bunch of people are going on Twitch to watch like one of their tournaments, like they need to be able to share in that pie of revenue, right? So, so that's a big thing. Obviously, the game makers are making a lot of money. Fortnite, I believe, surpassed 1.5 billion in revenue, uh, which has been one of the most successful games of all time. So the, the gaming guys are making money. Um, who else is making money? The, the, well, further to the games, like the in-game purchases, right? So people are paying to buy different skins or like buy different picks and shovels and all that stuff. Like there's a lot of money being made inside the game. And there's actually been a new coin or a new term coin called um, gaming as a service. So it's like the whole concept of recurring revenue within the game. So no longer are we just, you know, in those days where you buy a game for 90 bucks and that's it. Now you can generate a lot of revenue off of these uh, consumers from the, the continuous flow of them purchasing within the game. Let me back up a little bit. So you have a vast audience who are watching online. Are there esports? There must be esports tournaments where people gather in a theater or an arena or something to watch other people play on a big screen. Is is please? Uh, that- oh yeah, Cineplex is big on this. Cine- yeah, Cineplex is big on this. Uh, in Vancouver this summer, there was a huge gaming tournament that happened. I think it was in August over a three-day period. There were 90,000 people that flocked to the stadium. So, yeah, they sell bums in the seats the same way that, you know, professional sports league would sell out. Like, they sell those tickets. There's merchandising. Um, I'm sure there's other things that they they sell there that are specific to to e-gaming. I don't know what these fans like, but, um, yeah, no, there's definitely, that's a big part of it, and that's where the sponsorship money is going. What, though, of the money that the players are making? In 2010, Amber Healy learned that tournaments awarded about $6 million to the top players in Counter-Strike, Halo 3, StarCraft, Warcraft. But within just five years, it was $45.5 million. What is it now? And are we turning these 17-year-old kids, these 26-year-old kids into instant millionaires? Yeah, like the top the top YouTubers in the world, um, the top 10, eight of them were gamers, right? So, and I think their average income, I was looking at this, was somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to like 12 million. So you can actually make more money now. Well, the top players, I shouldn't over be overzealous you can make more money than the ceo of a bank (laughs) by being an e-gamer so it's like it's a viable career for sure i don't know what the exact prize pool number is but if the whole industry is about 900 million or a billion and something like 60 percent of that money is still in like the sponsorship and the tournament and all that it's it's several hundreds of millions of dollars between all of the all of those different uh those different avenues but the more the really interesting part that I, i find is that some of these prize pools, like the one that happened in Vancouver, and I can't remember what game it was, um, the bulk of that money was actually fan donations. So it wasn't actually sponsorship. So sometimes these prize pools are actually funded by the fans themselves, which means there's like a huge engaged community. Um, and I think that that's something that, you know, the Leafs and, 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 and the Blue Jays are kind of like looking at and going like, wow, like, how do we, how do we get into that kind of thing? Because we're competing with the same fan base to some degree. Yeah. Just what we need. We need to have the Toronto Maple Leafs beg for the fans to give them more money considering what their ticket prices are amongst the highest in the league. 
Yeah, isn't it? It's like cheaper to fly to Iceland and back on Air Canada Rouge than to like go to one of the playoff games or something. <laughs> Insane. Yeah, no, but I think I think the the part the engagement part. So so what I was reading about recently. So the NHL last month during the Consumer Electronics Show. This is pretty interesting. So they they signed a deal um, back in late in 2018 that they were now going to allow like sports betting, like they or like sports betting on the on the games in Vegas. So they teamed up with MGM Grand. But what they did at CSC was they basically put like wearable technology in the jerseys and the pucks and i believe some of the helmets of the players and had some games played secretly and their whole idea is to create um like gamification so like you'll be able to bet in real time on players and like sort of whether they're going to pass the puck left or right or score a goal or like whatever permutations of bets you can put on and they're really trying to create fan engagement in a new way and i'm not i don't know that this is directly um you know, trying to compete with e-gaming, but I'm sure they're looking at this and sort of going like, how can we, you know, use some of the same engagement tools that e-gaming has and, and bring them over to the leagues? That's absolutely crazy. Uh, and when we were at CES, we saw a ton of stuff. We didn't see anything like that. But let me ask you this. If we're going to get Alan Cross hooked on esports. Sure. Um, what game should we get him practicing? Ooh, that's so tough because I'm not a gamer myself. And so literally I can only name off like like Fortnite, <laughs> Fortnite, League of Legends, uh, Overwatch. But I guess the question with all of these is, is, is e-gaming for sure is here to stay. But is e-gaming like, like is e-gaming like the NHL, like the NBA, like the NFL? Like what is what game going to be which one? Like are we going to just see a constant rotation of games? Like how is this going to look like five years out? Because if Alan starts practicing and training for one game, well, how do we know that that's not going to go obsolete, right? So I, I don't think anybody can answer that question. And that th- I think is like the, you know, billion dollar question, really. Jovia, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the uh, the podcast, Michael. Jovia Rockdector is an esports evangelist and investor. She joined us from Toronto. Stay up to date on the latest in music, tech, and pop culture by going to geeksandbeats.com anytime. And for super happy, fun joy, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. people lined up for your autograph <laughs> I, I know i wish my wife was there i wish my parents were there to see exactly you know they all they don't know what i do for a living and i can't describe it so i, I had a radio buddy of mine once explained that his parents simply couldn't comprehend what he did in radio because he was a behind the scenes guy he was what we would call an op an operator someone who pushed all the buttons that were necessary to make radio possible and so he was convinced his parents believed he just fixed radios yeah <laughs> i know uh and, and my parents think that uh, uh you know now i have access to kings and queens and prime ministers and presidents oh well that's something to uh, have them believe there's nothing wrong with that well yeah they don't understand yeah 
I just leave them with that illusion. But they they live out in the middle of nowhere, right? So they're probably going to be bitching about uh, Justin Trudeau and begging you to make some changes up there in Ottawa. Yeah, something like that. It'll be, you know, do you know this person? Have you ever met this person? No. But on the topic of do you know this person, uh, one of my um, teenage crushes was at Music Fan Expo. Um... Sandy Horn. Oh, Sandy Horn. Okay, yes. Oh, my God, the spoons. I'm just going to look up Sandy Horn here. Sandy Horn went back in the day. A 1982, the first album, Stick Figure Neighborhood from the Spoons. It was released in 81, uh, but Areas and Symphonies was the big one that spawned not one, not two, but three top 40 hits in Canada. Uh, Smiling in Winter, Arias and Symphonies, and Nova Heart. Can't imagine you as a uh, a new wave kid. Kidding? I was totally into new wave and ska. That was my thing. Re- you? You were ska kid? Really? Total ska kid. Absolutely. Mirror in the bathroom, please don't freak. The door is locked, just you and me. Can I take you to a restaurant that's got glass tables? You can watch yourself while you... affinity for doc martin so okay i do and that's where i got them but i had a big affinity to the spoons and nova heart specifically so when we had an opportunity to talk to the two big shots behind this band that's been around for what 40 years now or so something like that. i'm like i'm gonna be there first spoons record i got was the ep which would have been 82 yeah, yeah. okay and then there was a series of albums Nova that came. Heart. Nova Heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there were a series of albums that came after that. So you guys have been around, well, 35 years anyway. Um, 40 next year. 40, 40. 40. Yeah, we, We're like Rush. Yeah, we're, 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 <laughs> <laughs> seriously. We're Spinal Tap, one of the two. Exactly. Yeah, but you guys always went up to yeah. 11. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So let's talk about this new material. Wow. I, I mean, I don't want to say anything, but I'm, I'm so proud of this thing. It's got a bit of everything. Like if it's got like the early punky days on it. It's got the Arias type stuff. It's got the Nile Rogers funky stuff on it. It's got the big grand opening and closing thing. It's got all the elements of what we've been known for. How much do you guys over forty years? Over forty years. <laughs> How much do you guys uh, play live these days? Quite a bit. Yeah, especially uh, summer festivals, casinos, theaters, yeah. that kind of thing. Right. And of course, we're going to be supporting the new album coming out March twenty. 20- 23rd. 23rd. Okay. At the wherever that was, the Great Hall in Toronto. Do you uh, do you remember a Pepsi gig with Flock of Seagulls? Yes. I remember that because Pepsi was not happy because the signature haircut was not there, which was in the ads. You know, the guy takes a sip and his hair sprouts, right? Well, the singer who I now work with is um, looking a little different. You know, he's matured. <laughs> So that's you mean does have the same look? Not, All these not the same hair. The signature no. haircut is is now fact, yeah a signature. <laughs> was that show at the Opera House? Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. Okay. I remember you guys came on. Big crowd for your set, and you went through the whole thing. Flock of Seagulls comes on. There's no hair, and they had turned into this industrial metal band. I know they yeah. had. You, that's exactly what I was going to say. Even us, we think, yeah, I'm a big Flock fan. It's like you say, heavy guy with Marshall Stack, and it was completely a different band. Yeah. Now, do you, you know that I play with them now, right? Did you know no. that? I'm, I'm, I'm a guitar player with them over the last year. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. That's what I told you on the last episode. Do I'm not watch your own show. I don't listen to you. Listen. I, we've toured everywhere. Listen to we the went, geek. Last year we went to Europe. We did that big 80s tour all across through the, the States Arena tour, headlining the Los 80s tour. And you know what? The old sound is back. I got rid of the old guys. And forget that. Back to JC120s, Firebird guitars, little pedals. It's just like the old days again. For Flock of Seagulls. The old sound. Forget this industrial oh, crap. I've worked right on it. I, I got right on that right away. So then at what point are you going to work on the next level, which has to be the haircuts? <laughs> is, is there enough hair maybe, left? Maybe you can take some of mine. <laughs> yeah. No, he actually looks very cool. He's I mean, he's completely shaved it now. But he's, he's got this sort of spaceman look, which is really working well. Mike, uh, Score. Score. Thank you. Okay. Sorry, I just had this heart attack that we weren't recording this conversation. Oh, that's you, okay. We've all had that radio moment where you look down in the middle of an interview and you forgot to put a tape in the machine oh. or you forgot to hit play record. You know, you know my story, right? Hook us up. Uh, <laughs> I had 30 minutes, one-on-one, face-to-face, undivided attention from David Bowie. Wow. And I forgot to unpause oh. the tape machine. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, no. Now, we could only talk about Tin Machine, so it's not like we lost a whole lot of really important <laughs> stuff. But still, yeah. I, I remember, you know, he was as close to me as I am oh, to you right man. now, and he's looking at me with a weird eye and the bad teeth, and I'm thinking... The weird eye and the bad teeth? What do you mean? <laughs> I don't know about this. <laughs> and I'm I'm thinking, you know, I'm not paying attention because that's Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. That's Aladdin oh, Sane. That's David Bowie. He's One right the there. regrets ever, I bet. And don't worry, I'll, I'll hear what he's saying when I listen to the tape later. Right now, I'm just completely starstruck. Don't worry, it's on oh, tape. Man. And it wasn't. Oh, no. What was the, the craziest tour story you guys ever had along those lines? Or um, were you guys always perfect in the no, last 40 no, years? Never. No, 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 no. Everything that happens is Final Tap, as people have told you, happens in real life. It, it does. That's why we didn't yeah. laugh when we watched the movie, because it's real. Yeah, well, whatever. It's, that happens every day. But the biggest thing, I would say, when you tour with a larger band, especially in the States, Big Arena Tour, they usually do a hazing thing at the end, like a farewell. That's, that's probably the craziest stories we had. And it was right around Spinal Tap. We were touring with Survivor. We just finished with Human League, which makes sense. Survivor. Oh, yeah. But you know what? They're doing arenas. So we come out. And I can't even tell you all the stuff they did to us, including the band and the crew dressing in big bunny outfits and, and with whips and going at Sandy on stage. People thought it was a tubes concert. They were, thought it was an extravaganza. But the best part is they actually did this during the movie. They made a little Stonehenge and they lowered it down during the end of the set. The audience didn't even get it yet, but we did. Yeah. Wow. That's Survivor. So you guys are working on the new album coming out uh, mid-March. Yes, it's, it's just basically done and going to manufacturing. And uh, it's called New Day, New World. So I suppose now the real work kind of begins because you got to promote this thing. Uh, yep. Oh, no, the work's over. I, I get so <laughs> stressed making albums. Like, for me, it's like it's the last minute, right? When it's done, it's you let it go, and you're like, oh, what, What's the happens. stress of making an album for you? It's like, I guess, like a movie maker. You have an idea, right? And but. To get it to that end point, you got to go through so many hurdles and changes and, and hopefully come back where the original idea started, and that's that's tough, you know? I guess it's difficult. You know, you, you have an idea at the beginning, and so many other fingerprints end up on a project that you have to sort of step back at some points and recognize you're not making all the decisions. Yeah. No, and this has been kind of an ongoing process. We started uh, two of the songs from the album about two years ago, so it's been a very slow process, and I'm glad we waited. We were going to rush it and try and get it out last summer, but... 
within that, we came it's up with two. the last new, songs yeah, that the are the best. Yeah, the last two songs you know. were the best. And we have a really tight group. Like, it's, it's pretty well just Sandy and I. We have other guys in the band, but they weren't that involved. And Jeff Carter is producer. He needed a lot of programming stuff. So the three of us are just a really good unit to get it done. Okay, final question. Speaking of producers, tell me a Nile Rogers story. Nile <laughs> Rogers story. Oh, my God. Well, he's a different guy now than he was back in the 80s. Now he's yeah. the most humble, sweet man in the world. Back then, he was Mr. Cool. You know, he walked in wearing a three-piece suit in New York City. He was like a, right out of shaft or something, right? Yeah, like that, that look, a lot of arrogance and cool, but he deserved it, right? And um, but the coolest story, I would say, when we went down to do the album, he'd just been working with Bowie. Yeah, so yeah. So I flew down early to go see Bowie. I mean, he had been working with Bowie because I didn't care about Nile. I didn't even, if I lish, like, what they call the freak and yeah, the sheep. Uh, it wasn't my thing but he's working with Bowie so I'm going to go down I'll hang out check it out and get to see Bowie saying like so I'm sitting there and they're recording and recording and, and I'm looking at the door the whole time waiting for Bowie to show up never showed up never showed up meanwhile all day long this guy playing guitar all day long beside me I couldn't care less because I'm waiting for Bowie it was Stevie Ray Vaughan you know? oh, <laughs> stupid but he wasn't that well known quite yet so Okay, oh, so and he, I had Mick Jagger open the door at the power station for me. That's, so that's, that's cool. even better. Yeah, yeah. Oh, at least he was a gentleman about it. Yes, he was. And, and yeah. Mick Jagger's even shorter than you, isn't he? Oh, he's about my height, actually. <laughs> <laughs> They're all small. Yes, so. all of us successful types. Yes. We're really small yes. compared to others. Yes, yes, okay. Okay, he said last question, but I, I, I'm the, the big spoons nerd here. Okay. And one of my all-time favorite songs, Hand to God, Nova Heart. Mm-hmm. And what am, at the time when it came out, and, and even further on, actually, I'm kind of lying when I say at the time it came out, because I was never cool enough to listen to it when it came out, but the, the idea of Architects of the World, Yes. You, you wrote those lyrics at a time before you became an architect of the world and had an <laughs> opportunity to change that world. Do the lyrics change you really for you now? Thinker, right? <laughs> I'm trying. Well, you know what? That is such an uncool, un-rock and roll way to start a song. But that was the 80s, right? It was kind of all suburban and angular and uh, kind of uncool in a way. Like Talking Heads and all those guys, their lyrics, right? And we admired. And the other thing is, before I was, I thought, I only realized this years later, before I was going to be a musician, growing up as a kid, I thought I was going to be an architect. So it had to creep in somewhere, I guess. Ah, okay. It could have started, I'll be a, you know, a dentist of the world or something. No, good thing it wasn't. No, it was dentist. architects. Good thing you didn't become an architect. What, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, I've always wanted to be on stage. Yeah? Yeah, I've been on stage since I was five, right. modeling, dancing, the whole nine years. Ever since so. Judy Garland, right? Yeah, I, when I was a kid, I saw Judy Garland. I said, I want to do what she's doing. What, drugs? No, <laughs> no not No, not drugs. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh. No, being on stage, oh, singing, okay, performing. Okay. I just didn't know how I was going to get there. Playing bass was not... I didn't well, go, hey, I, I mean, want to be a bass player. How many female bass players were there? There was you and Tina Weymouth. That's pretty much it. And, and uh, um, whoever played in the, in the Runaways... And uh, what's her name? King, isn't it King? King? Um, no, no, her last name. I'm trying to think. She did uh, a lot of the theme songs. She's an older oh, woman. Oh, she was like in the Wrecking Crew, uh, the Cutting oh, Crew. Right, 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 yeah. yeah and that's girl. it. So yeah. we got four. Yeah. She was the coolest, right? Yeah. 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 I always thought chicks with guitars were always the hottest guitarists. Oh, thank you. But <laughs> listen, back in the 70s and early 80s, it was... Did you deal with a lot of sexism? When it came to a little what? bit, because I was considered token, she really can't play. Right. She Someone can play. must she be playing. Play. Someone's playing her parts behind stage. 
what, what are you playing now with, uh, with guitar? Bass? I'm playing a Spectre bass. It's oh, actually... That's a cool story. You're the yeah. only female... Tell yeah. the story. Okay. Um, Spectre started in the late 70s, and in 86, they sold to Kramer, and they kind of went public, and they weren't being handmade anymore. So I have two basses pre-selling to Kramer, and then they eventually got it back because apparently Kramer made a mess of everything. So I have the pre-basses, and because I started playing the bass, Niall Rogers introduced it to me because Bernard, Bernard Edwards, Edwards played, played it. Sting played him. Yeah. Um, I'm now the longest-standing only Spectre player. Like she's, she, you're like on their roster, like yeah, the female on the, on yeah, on cover their, girl or something. Yeah. There's Spectre basses. Yeah. Have you seen Getty's, Getty Lee's book? No. Getty's big, beautiful book of bass. Oh, okay. It's, uh, I can't remember how many pictures, like 2,600 pictures of, of his bass collection. <laughs> and it's it, he has things like, okay, so this Fender uh, Jazz from 52 was only one of three made with stainless steel uh, knobs. Right. And it has a particular type of headstock. So he got really, really geeky about it and says, well, I have a 52 Jazz. So I need a 53, and a 54, and a 55, and he at one point he had something like 300 bases in his house, and he made this giant coffee table book of it, and it's fantastic. Get it? Amazon, $65. See, I'm a gear nut, so I would go he's, for it. He's a member of the Amazon Prime program, yeah. so he's going to get a cut of that. Okay, so that was all about Fender, but I've only ever seen him play Rickenbacker. Well, no, so. but, no, no he's, back, he's got the Fender signature Getty Lee bass, right? Oh, okay, I didn't but, know that. He collects either. everything. I mean, he, he, I talked to him, and he said, you know, when I collect things, I get stupid. I, I collected Negro Baseball League baseballs. And he collects wine, and then he got into this whole bass thing. One of his roadies introduced him to really something. He collects money, too. Uh, <laughs> he collects money. <laughs> thank you so much for your yeah, time, thank guys. You. Thank it's you. It's great having you, you with us. So The Spoons was the opening act in the day for The Culture Club, Simple Minds, The Police. And I didn't know this, but some pretty important people were behind the sound, including Daniel Lanois. Daniel Lanois in the early days, Nile Rogers, the producer that uh, did uh, Let's Dance for David Bowie. Oh, yes. They, uh, at one point in the early to middle 80s, uh, they, they were tipped to be possibly on the verge of some kind of international superstardom. But it's amazing how the nature of the business is such that you can do everything right, but if you are not in the right place at the right time, forget about it. Geography is destiny. On the topic of geography, though, we had uh, not only a bunch of fans of the Alan Cross show up to get <laughs> autographs of you, but we actually had Geeks and Beats fans show up, too, including one couple who made the drive all the way from Montreal. So I want yeah. to say thank you to Stefan Dubord and his lovely but long-suffering wife. <laughs> she had no interest whatsoever in meeting us, but she was like, you know what? Get me out of the house. We've got three teenage boys we're going to leave them alone, we'll pour a bowl full of dog food for them, and we're off to a nice hotel in Toronto for the weekend. Which is exactly what happened in a pair. Was it that, was it that couple that had the jacuzzi in their room? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Good, so good for them. So, so you know that this was definitely a husband and wife getaway weekend. Yes, it was. And we were happy, happy beyond belief to give them an excuse to get away. Not all of the fans who came up to see us and to talk to you... Um, were as lovely and put together as Stefan and his wife. 
Uh, you counted at last check, not one, <laughs> not two, but three people who came up to you with their flies undone. Yeah, I know. I, I had an over-under of five on that. Yes. What did it end up being? Uh, it was three. It okay. was three, yeah. See, because the, the funny thing is, is that one might not notice at a, a big event like Music Fan Expo that someone had their fly down, except for the fact that you and I were seated at a table in a booth area, and people were coming up to us standing, so our line of sight was by and large crotch level. Yeah, pretty much, and and there was just no way to miss it. <laughs> so, and, and in the first 20 minutes, those, those three people came in the first 20 minutes. So we want to say thank you to Mark at uh, the Music Fan Expo who made it possible for us to be there with our own table and the whole nine yards. And uh, Krista Sampson as well, who is uh, our, was our field producer for the big episode. She was down there making sure that nobody walked off with our crap while we were busy being on the radio, so to speak. Yes. And uh, she was also the official staff photographer for people who wanted selfies and other things. Exactly. And she did a great job on the social media front as well. And she went for burgers. She picked up burgers for us, too. So, Krista, thank you so much uh, for being the backbone behind the operation while we were at uh, Music Fan Expo. Uh, it was the third year that they were doing it, right? Yeah. And I talked to Mark on the way out, and there will be a year four. Excellent. And I suggested to him that uh, maybe we ought to hand the responsibility of the organization for us to me. Uh, yeah. You okay with that? I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> Didn't you show up without your charger? No, you, you asked me to bring my charger after I'd actually left the house. <laughs> and it didn't matter because everything was lightning connector and everything powered anyway. It all worked out. It all worked out. Yeah. Of course, uh, Stefan Dubord was one of the original members of the world's worst intern program. Mm-hmm. Uh, an original, yes, like year, week one. Exactly. Uh, we want to say thank you to other members of the World's Worst Intern Program. And what makes it the world's worst is you pay us to work on the show. One dollar an episode, at least. You don't do any actual work. And the only credit you get is us saying thank you in a random sort of way on any given episode. This week, we'd like to say thank you to Grant Ridge, Greg David, Ian Long, Jacqueline Schwass, James Holmes, Jason Winterbottom, Jeff Coverley, Joe G, Kevin Button, Kevin Darbyshire, Kevin Ryan, Crystal, Kyle, uh, Makiro Neko, and Mark Wagner. So if you'd like to be a member of the World's Worst Intern Program, support the big show. Go to our uh, website, geeksandbeats.com. Click the support the show link. If you're not a fan of Patreon, and some people are not, you can uh, submit a regular uh, recurring donation via PayPal as well, just by clicking the PayPal link. Yes, we appreciate it. Uh, we do um, end up spending this money on things like, like, like burgers. Um, but if we didn't, then we would have gone into insulin shock and probably died during the fan expo. Wow, that's pretty rough. Uh, listen, I'm not kidding anybody. They did have medics standing by. They did. I saw that. In case I swooned over Sandy Horn. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to all new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or stream us live every Wednesday at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcasts with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.